bringing the word this morning, so let's uh, let's pray that the word has its right effect among the people of God. Lord, bless your servant Seth now. Help him to stay focused. Give him liberty where the Spirit would have him speak even beyond his good and studied notes. Let the message fall on ready ears and hearts that are truly ready to receive the engrafted word and have it do its wonderful work in us, Lord. We need it. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We'll continue where Pat left off last week. Galatians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 21. It is a blessing, it is a privilege to bring the Word this morning to everyone. It is good to be here, it's good to be with the saints. I'm certainly thankful for the opportunity to preach this passage. We did Galatians in Youth Group about five, six years ago, and it's been wonderful to dive back into it and, and study it again for this sermon. Uh, I was also reminded this week uh, of something I want to just uh, mention. And when, when I study for a, a sermon, I notice that there's a lot more time that goes into it than would uh, obviously normally go into studying the Word throughout a normal week. And just thinking of, on that, over this past week especially, I was reminded what a blessing it is for my wife to be in our home um, helping and taking care of things, especially on a week when I need to be more uh, on my own studying than I would normally. And uh, I certainly want to extend my thanks to her um, and, to, and to all the, the, the wives and those that um, you know, support, especially the people that are studying so that they can serve the church in this way. Uh, so we're just certainly very grateful for that. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 21. We're picking up in the middle of an argument, in the middle of a thought, and uh, we'll continue in that argument where Pat left off last week, starting in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And we'll stop there this week, and Pat will pick it up next week and continue on with what Paul is, is discussing here. Uh, just some reminders of the context as we dive into our passage this morning. We are in the middle, obviously, of Paul discussing a topic. What he is specifically looking at is that the Galatians were being tempted, they were being taught by a group called the Judaizers to return to the law, right? To add the Old Testament law to their Christian lives. And they were specifically uh, highlighting circumcision as a requirement. And Paul will uh, very, very aggressively talk about that later in chapter 5. And we need to remember that this was not a minor issue, right? This was a significant enough issue where Peter himself was led astray by the ideas in this theology, all right, and so this is not a, a minor thing to be passed over, but this was a big deal. 
And Paul rightly calls this, this false gospel, right, a desertion of Christ. Right? If the Galatians go down this road, if they believe in this false gospel, they will have left Christ. Uh, so it is definitely not an issue that is insignificant. We also ought not think this is limited to the first century. Right? There have been lies and false doctrines that have come, been coming against the church for centuries. The church frequently encounters temptations to leave the truth of the gospel. If you think about the past months, the past year, we might ask some of these questions. Uh, should the church accept the definition of justice that is given by the group Black Lives Matter? That is a question we've had to wrestle with as a church. How do we define justice? Because they define it in a very different way than the church ought to. Another question, is virtual or online church the same as physically coming together as a body? Does it matter if you attend church with believers? Does loving your neighbor mean that you must get a certain vaccine? Right? Not all of these issues are going to rise to the level of denying the gospel. But if we need to be consistent in the gospel, if we need to be faithful to the gospel, we have to think about these questions that continually arise in our culture. And we have to come up with good answers. And in order to stay true to the gospel, we must know the gospel thoroughly. Right? We must know it clearly and hold to it tightly. Otherwise, one of these issues will come up and we will start to be convinced and led astray from the gospel. And so this is something that we need to be reminded of even in our culture today. As we do that, we want to remember a couple of things. First, remember that our Lord is the one who holds on to us. Right? John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Right? We want to take comfort not in our perfect theology because none of us have it perfect. Right? We're going to get to heaven and realize we believe some things that were wrong. Um, we need to rest in the preserving sovereignty of God. Right? He is the one who holds on to us Our perfect theology is not going to get us to heaven. He is. And He will keep us as believers, as true believers, He will keep us from wandering off. Um, And sometimes it takes a letter like what Paul wrote in a very harsh way to the Galatians to keep true believers on track. Second, we do need to be wise and cautious. In, In Hebrews, the author there says in 13, chapter 13, verse 9, do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Right, so we don't just rest in the sovereignty of God and believe anything that comes along. No, we need to be wise and realize our responsibility to avoid diverse and strange teachings. And so that is what Paul is doing here as he cautions the Galatians and calls them back and tells them that they are in danger of believing a false gospel. And so he does that and addresses two main questions that we have really come across so far. The first one being, how are we justified? He talks about this specifically in chapter 2, verse 21. He talks about whether or not we are justified by faith or by keeping the law. And he says in chapter 2, verse 21, If I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, if you were justified by the law, right, then Christ died for no purpose. All right, so what is at stake here in this understanding is justification, whether how we are justified. Second, there's also the question of what does it look like to live as a believing Christian? Do you live by faith through the Spirit or do you live by the law? And he's continuing to 
answer that question as we go through the book of Galatians. He does that first by pointing to Abraham, as we have talked about in previous weeks, talking about the, the faith that Abraham had before the law was given, right? And the, the true sons are the ones that are who follow in the faith of Abraham. And then he talks more specifically after that about the law and the role that the law played. And so we're, we're entering a discussion in the middle of that. And we're actually entering on the second question that Paul asks. The first one Pat talked about last week, right? Why the law? Right, so if the promise given to Abraham right, is, is what brings, believing that promise by faith is what brings salvation, then why do we have the law? And Pat talked about that. It's because of transgressions, right? The law was given to expose the total depravity of the heart. And it says that the law was given until Christ would come. So it points to the, the temporary nature of the law. The second question is what we're considering today. Verse 21 is where that question is asked. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? We want to remember as we consider this question, um, Paul is looking at this in terms of salvation history. Right? He's looking over the long centuries from when the promise was given, the law was given, and now to when Christ comes, and he's analyzing the law and the promise right, in history. Right? He is not specifically talking about your experience as a believer right, and how you felt conviction and then were saved. That there's application that we can bring out to individual believers, but that is not what Paul is arguing here. And that will help us as we think about faith and the law in the verses we read this morning. So is the law contrary to the promises of God? Well, we need to start by thinking about what does it mean for something to be contrary to something else? And there's a couple of, of ways we can look at that. The first being something like the the argument I had over the Thanksgiving dinner table with one of uh, Larissa's the wife of one of Larissa's cousins. Right, we talked about Calvinism and Arminianism. And generally when I go to the South, this comes up and we have a good conversation. And it was a wonderful conversation, but this, this young lady was arguing for Arminianism and I was contrary to her and I was opposing her in my arguments and we were, we were having a good, healthy debate. Right? One of us is saying that the other is wrong and that's how we were contrary to or opposing each other. The other way that you can think about contrary is I think what Paul is looking at here. And it's the idea of two runners running in a race. Right? They are not specifically opposed to each other or fighting each other. Right? They're not saying, one runner is not saying the other is wrong, but rather they are both attempting to get to the, the finish line first. So in that sense, they are contrary to each other. Right? They are, in that sense, competing. They're trying to both accomplish the same goal. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about the law and the promise. Right? It's not that they are fighting each other, but he's asking the question, if righteousness comes by the promise, right, and righteousness comes by the law, well, if that is true, then they are contrary to each other. Right? They're not fighting each other, but they're both trying to accomplish the same thing if righteousness comes by the law or it could also come by the promise. And so in that sense, he asks, are they contrary to one another? And his answer is, certainly not. Because God never intended for the law to be put in the race, as it were, for righteousness. Right? The, the law was not given to help us 
achieve righteousness and salvation in the sense that we could earn it. The promise is that which is, quote-unquote, in the race. The promise is the way that we achieve righteousness by faith. And so we don't have these two things in the same race competing for the same goal. Rather, we have righteousness coming by faith in the promise and the law being given for a different reason. And that's what he says in the second half of verse 21. For if the law had been, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But that is not why the law was given. God is not confusing. That is a beautiful, good thing for us. God has given one way for us to be righteous. He has not given multiple ways. The law was not intended to bring life, and so therefore it is not contrary to the promise. So that is a a reminder for the Galatians. If that is true, and it is, then it would be completely nonsensical to return to the law for righteousness. If it was never intended to bring righteousness, then there is no point in returning to it for righteousness. So then the question is, then what did the law do? And this is what Paul is going to answer in the next three verses, 22 through 24. And they all have a very similar uh, way they're written and a very similar message. And so we'll kind of take them together, verses 22 through 24. I'll reread them just so we can... We can have them in our minds, but, but think about how these verses are, all three of them start talking about the law, they have a transition point, and then they finish talking about the promise. And so we'll consider all three of them together that way. Verse 22, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So you can see the similarity between these three verses. And we'll pull out some some points that we can learn about the law and then we'll Go ahead and pull out some points we can learn about the promise. But I first want to make a comment about verse 22. Paul doesn't use the word law in verse 22. He says scripture. And it's a a notable difference. Scripture entails more than just the Old Testament law, Old Testament commandments given specifically to Moses in the covenants at Mount Sinai. So why does Paul switch to this word scripture that seems to encapsulate more than just the law? Up to this point, he has just talked about the law. He seems to be using the terms with some interchangeability. But I think he uses Scripture here because I think he means to expand what he is saying beyond just the law. The whole testimony of Scripture is in view. And it's a good reminder that, that if the Mosaic Law had never been given, humanity would still be imprisoned under sin. Right? We did not all of a sudden become sinners because the Mosaic Law came. Right? We were imprisoned and held captive under sin before the Mosaic Law came. Because God is a holy God, and He has always 
revealed to varying extents in the Old Testament His holy requirements. And humanity has always fallen short of those holy requirements. Right, and so we're, we're more so looking at the entirety of Scripture and saying that the holiness of God revealed in the Scripture is condemn sinners and will always make it impossible for sinners to gain righteousness on their own before a holy God. God is clearly holy. We are clearly not. And so the Scripture is going to lock down the possibility of sinners being right before God by works. And the Mosaic Law simply made that more clear. Right? It gave more definition to that reality. The other thing I want to point out is in verse 24, before we pull some general principles from these three verses, and is that where Paul says the law was our guardian. Guardian was a very culturally rich term in that time period and something that we don't understand as well today. Guardian was the term used for a, a person, often a, a household slave, who was put in charge of the children of the house before the children reached an age of maturity where they would be able to be doing things on their own. Not necessarily a teacher, but there were teaching elements to that guardian's role. But they were more of a child attendant, almost like a, a, a babysitter or somebody who watched the children as they were young, made sure they got to school, made sure they got home, you know, taught them certain basics, attended to them. And in that sense, Paul is calling the law our guardian, right? That which gave us rules, taught us things, said, no, don't do it this way, rather do it this way. But the, the important part of the comparison that he uses is that the guardian was a temporary thing. And so when he talks at the end of our passage about being sons of God, right? he has, he has gone from being under guardianship to this, this new position of being a son, right? or being fully a child in the family and no longer under that guardianship. And so he's highlighting a guardian there to talk about the temporary nature of the law. So verses 22, 23, 24, what do we learn about the law? First, the law imprisons. Right? The scripture imprisons, locks down sinners. The holy standard of God revealed to us in his word means that we cannot escape from being sinners. We are certainly sinners. If you need convincing, we, we could have a five-minute conversation after this sermon, and I could convince you. Right? There is no hope of you showing me that you are a perfect, holy person. Right? The, the holy standard of God is such that we are all condemned. We are too sinful to be righteous before God. When you read Romans 7, it, it even goes further and talks about how the law riles up sin. Right? It, it causes the sin within us to to rear its ugly head even more and so that we become even worse sinners because if you've, if you've had children, you know that once the rule is given, there's that extra incentive for them to disobey. Right? The rules still need to be given, but our sin nature is such that the rules reveal our sin and show how sinful we are. The sin's always there. Just the, the command of God draws it out The law teaches 
what is holy and what is sinful. It shows with increasing clarity the truth of Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. But the problem is it gives no help. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't fix our sin problem. It doesn't change our hearts or give us the ability to do better. It simply shows us our problem. That there's no cleansing power in a mirror. That there's nothing that a mirror can do to fix what you look like. I may want to convince myself that I'm a heartthrob. Uh, maybe for, the, for those of a previous generation, the James Dean type or... Currently, the the Brad Pitt type. Or maybe that I have the muscles of a Captain America. But if I'm standing in front of a mirror, the truth is revealed, and I can't, the mirror can't do anything to fix it. Because I'm clearly none of these. You may have, instead of a mirror, you may have a four-year-old. I thought I looked fairly dapper this morning. I don't often put the suit on. But uh, I asked Renee, do I look really good? And she says, um, not really. (laughs) And so it's that honesty, that wonderful honesty that you can get from a mirror or from your wonderful, wonderful four-year-olds. But either way, there's nothing that can be done to fix it, right? It is simply revealing who you are. And that is what the law does to the sinner. The sinner looks into the law and sees sin in themselves and they can't get rid of it. The law, therefore, imprisons and condemns. Secondly, from these three verses, the law is temporary in its covenantal role. In all these verses, we see a transition point, right? In verse 22, Paul says, so that. In verse 23, he says, you are imprisoned until. Verse 24, the law was our guardian until. We need to recognize the place of the law in the history of salvation, in redemptive history, and it is a temporary role that God gave it in that history. But does the law then, as we asked before, become contrary to the promise? Because it does all these negative things? No. Rather, it serves the promise by revealing that you cannot obtain righteousness on your own. It highlights your need for a salvation outside of yourself. It doesn't give you hope in yourself, and it should cause every sinner to cry out to God, I need help beyond myself. And that is how the law serves the promise. And so let's let's look at the turning point and what happens after the turning point in all three of these verses. In verse 22, Paul says, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, in order that we might be justified by faith. So what do we learn from from these verses? Well, first I want to make a comment about what, what happened before Christ came in regards to faith. You know, we have this, this period of the law, and then we have the period of faith coming in Christ, as Paul talks about it. So what happened before Christ, when people were just under the law? And again, we need to remember that Paul is looking at the big picture of redemptive history. 
Right? He is not saying that there was never faith before Christ, right? or that or faith could only be exercised after Christ, but rather he is describing how faith and the law work in redemptive history. Believers in the Old Testament, just as Abraham did, right, by faith looked forward to the promise. Hebrews 11 is full of examples of these believers who looked forward by faith to the promise. And so they were saved in the same way that we are, right? But the revelation for the believer today is greater. Right? We understand more. We see salvation history from the law through Christ, right? They were seeing it before Christ. So the revelation was different, but they were still saved by faith. They still exercised faith. But now, as Paul is talking about here, the age of the law has been completed. The age of faith has come, and that's why he is talking in these terms and proving the superiority of the age of faith over the age of law. And again, you hear that subtle reminder, so don't go back. Right? There's no need to go back since we have come to the place in salvation history that is greater than what came before. But what do we learn about what God has done in Christ from these verses? First, that the promise comes by faith. Right? It comes by believing in Jesus Christ. And when Paul talks about promise, he's talking about the blessing of salvation, right? The right standing that we need before a holy God. He's talking about eternal life, being saved, being redeemed. As he says in verse 24, he's talking about justification by faith, being declared righteous before God, and it comes by faith. Secondly, we learn that Faith in Christ frees us from the condemnation of the law. Under the law, we were imprisoned, he says. So now that faith has come, we are free. And how does this happen? Well, it happens because Christ came and lived a holy, perfect life. Perfectly keeping the law of God to every, every extent possible. Right? Loving God with all of His heart his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, every day of his life, in his thoughts, in his deeds, in his words. Loving his neighbor as himself with absolute perfection every moment of every day. Where the law rightly accuses and condemns each and every one of us, it could never say any of those things about Christ. Right? The law looked upon Christ, as it were, and saw absolute perfection. And then he died. And while on the cross, he was treated as a sinner. Which is an amazing statement when you realize what his life was like. He was treated on the cross as you and I. And he endured the eternal punishment that his sinful people deserved. And so now, when a sinner believes by faith, right, the, the penalty and the condemnation for their sins is removed. It's consumed by Christ, and His righteousness is granted to the believer. And so in this beautiful exchange, the sinner is then declared righteous and justified before a holy God. 
This is what we remember in the Lord's Supper that we will do later. And it's, it's, it's the gospel. It's, it's, it's the reason we rejoice each and every day and worship our God. We also learn in these verses that the guardian's task is done. The law reveals the sinner's desperate need as we've been talking about. The law shows the sinner their works are not good enough. But once faith has come, the guardian's role is done. That child becomes of age. The guardian is no longer needed. This is emphasized in verse 25. Now that faith has come, there is, we are no longer under a guardian. There's no longer a need for the law to be controlling and condemning the sinner because in Christ, by faith, we have been declared righteous before God. And so our, our two questions that we had asked at the beginning, what Paul is trying to argue here, is justification by, by faith or by the law? It is clearly by faith. What about living as a, a saved Christian? Is it by faith through the Spirit or the law? I think we can say from these verses that it is clearly not the law, although Paul has yet to fully detail out what it looks like to live by the Spirit, and he'll do that as we continue to work through Galatians. In verse 26, Paul finishes our section with a glorious truth. We'll read verse 25 to connect into verse 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And this is what a, such a glorious truth, especially when we, we think about the condemnation of the law, right? the rightful condemnation for sinners such as us. What a glorious truth to be declared sons of God. To be given the place of Christ. I know we like to often say sons and daughters, but I think we ought to just maintain sons here. Not, not because women who believe are not included, but because we, as sons of God, are put in the place of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? We are elevated to His position. And so every believer, male and female, is brought into that place, that position. Right? It's not a matter of gender. It's a matter of who you are connected with by faith. And it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so in that sense, we are all, as believers, called sons of God through faith. This would be especially glorious for the Gentiles of the day. As the Judaizers were coming in and elevating the Old Testament law, there would have been a certain pride that a Jewish person, person would have right, in seeing their heritage and their, their law elevated. A certain temptation to that, to look down on the Gentiles, kind of think of them as second-class Christians. And Paul just obliterates that, and, and, and Pat will further develop this next week. And Paul talks about there being neither Jew nor Greek. Right, right? This, this gospel, this glorious truth of being the sons of God, has obliterated the distinction between Jew and Gentile. So we look at salvation history, and we have the promise given to Abraham. We have a, a period of guardianship. And then we have the promise fulfilled in Christ, and now... Believers are sons of God, all by the promise, all by faith, 
in the family, loved forever by God, the work is done. That is what union with Christ means. Right? The work has been accomplished. We have, by grace, by faith, full, the full benefits of sonship. And this is how history, the salvation history has progressed to its culmination in Christ. And so Paul is calling the Galatians, calling all of us to live in the culmination, live in the fulfillment of the promise. Right? It's as, a, as if they were on a, a journey towards the destination of the fulfillment, and now they're wanting to go back to the journey. Right? And Paul is saying that makes no sense. Right? right? Live in the fulfillment of the promise. Lord willing, and, and we'll say... 12 months, we'll be worshiping in a new location, right? And that will be a wonderful day. And I very much doubt that any of us, right, on that day when we, Lord willing, get into the building and we see it's a beautiful place for us to worship, I doubt any of us will say, I really want to go back to that time when we were knocking down walls and spending lots of money and trying to figure out how to fix this and that. We have arrived in Christ by faith at the destination intended. So Paul says, do not, do not go back to the journey. Live in the faith that has saved you. Right? So what does it look like for us today? Um, we, we don't often, or certainly not in the way that the Judaizers were, were teaching the Galatians, we don't struggle with this issue of going back to the law like those Jews and, and Gentiles would have been tempted to. So what does it look like for us today to think through these things and, and take home something that is going to uh, impact us and change us? Well, first, learning about the Word of God is always impactful. Right? Understanding the Gospel more clearly is always going to be helpful. But one thing that we can specifically say is that legalism, or adding requirements to the Gospel, is opposed to the biblical doctrine of salvation. Some of you have experienced a legalistic church where there's this attractiveness to doing things so that you can feel like you are achieving something, right? or just the attractiveness of knowing if I must do this and, and I can't do this and the lines are rigid, and as long as I stay in those lines, I'm good. But that is a denial of how we are saved, how we are made right before God. Right? It is not by works. It is not by keeping rules and laws. We are saved by grace alone in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. And nothing added. Your favor with God. Maybe this is something you struggle with as a believer. Right? Whether or not God looks upon you with favor. Right? That is not going to be based on how good of a day or how bad of a day you are having. Right? He looks at you in Christ. Your union with Christ is why He looks upon you with love. And that will never change if you are a believer. We don't want to live legalistically when we have been saved by grace. We're certainly not detailing everything here on this topic. A believer ought to, as James talks about, live out the faith right, that has changed them. Right? Salvation produces works. And if we are living in sin, that is going to hinder our fellowship with God. But Paul is here focusing on salvation, right? And we need to never, ever forget that we are saved by grace, through faith, plus nothing, right? 
And that never changes because God never changes. Secondly, the law, as we think about our lives today, the law is not binding on the Christian as they live out the salvation that has been given to them in Christ by faith. The law is not binding. And we'll certainly continue to discuss this as we work through Galatians. Paul will have more to say about this. But very simply, the guardianship has ended. You are no longer under a guardian. This doesn't negate the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God. It doesn't diminish the value of the Old Testament. And in 2 Timothy, Paul will say to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 16, the word of God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Right? When he says that, he's talking about the Old Testament. Right? He is not diminishing the value of the Word of God. But it does mean that we are understanding the Old Testament, and specifically the law, in the context of what Christ has done. Right? The, the fulfillment has come. The culmination of the Old Testament promises has arrived, and so now we understand those Old Testament passages through the lens of Christ. Tom Schreiner in his commentary on this says, the Old Testament is part of sacred scripture and is authoritative for believers. Still, the application of laws in the Mosaic Covenant to today must be discerned in light of the entire story of redemption culminating in the coming of Christ. One good example as you think through these things is, is the Sabbath. Right? Clearly, one of the commandments God gave us in the Ten Commandments, in the Mosaic Law. But in Christ, we find the fulfillment of that rest. Right? So as believers, we are at rest always in Christ. And so we are no longer needing to obey the specific command to rest every seven days as it was given in the Old Testament with certain stipulations and requirements and distances you could travel, but rather we are living in the fulfillment of that command. We are not bound by the Old Testament law, but rather we are living at rest in Christ every day because He has taken care of all of the work. Thirdly, we need to share a gospel that condemns and offers salvation. Share a gospel that condemns and offers salvation. This is one of the the good lessons we can take from the law. The gospel is not a match.com advertisement, right? You're wonderful, and so is Jesus, and you two would be great together. That is not the gospel. Good news is good when you understand the bad news. Right? Remember, the law serves the promise by revealing sin, by showing people to be the wretched sinners they are, and condemning them. And the gospel comes to that condemned sinner and says there is hope in a Savior who redeems dead sinners, who gives life to those that are imprisoned under their sins. And so we preach a gospel that needs to tell people they are sinners and then show them salvation is in Christ and only in Christ. 
The gospel says that your sins have earned you condemnation eternally. But you must repent of your wickedness and bow before the gracious, loving Savior you desperately need. And by faith, you, you can believe and trust in Him for salvation and be welcomed into the family of God as sons. And certainly, we, we ought to pray for wisdom in this. If you read the Gospels, you see Jesus doing this as He interacts with people, but He doesn't always do it the same way. Some people very quickly understand their sinfulness. You think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. All Jesus has to say to her is, Go call your husband. Right? And she admits her sin. Right? She's had five, and, and the man she... What she says to him, sorry, is, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. If you read that passage, it's fascinating that he never brings it up again. She changes the subject very quickly, and he never brings it up again. Right? Because there, there's no need. The, the sin has been exposed. She knows her need of a Savior. But if you think of the Pharisees, or you think of later in John chapter 8, the Jews who, quote-unquote, believed in Him, He spends time showing how, telling them how wretched they are because they don't get it, because they don't see it. In John chapter 8, Jesus eventually gets to the point where He says to them, you are of your father the devil. And they still don't see it. So we need wisdom in this. But the beauty is that the gospel saves sinners. Whether it takes a while for the, the person to realize they need it or not, we have the glorious gospel that saves sinners by faith in Christ, by grace alone. And so the last thing we want to be reminded of this morning from this passage is, is what connects beautifully into what we're about to do. We're about to remember our Lord in communion. And we need to rejoice in the gospel as we remember our glorious Savior. Yes, the law condemns. Yes, we are condemned. But our glorious Savior has made the way. He has done the work. He has lived the righteous life that we needed. And as it says here in verse 26, you in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are a believer here this morning, you can sit for a moment and think of that and rejoice in that. Right? Let that, that sink in once again as we look at the elements and think of our Savior coming and living a perfect life and then dying the death that we deserve so that we could go free, so that we could be sons of God through faith. So we just encourage that you would let that sink in as we close in prayer and, and take the Lord's Supper and rejoice in what our Savior has done for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are simply in awe of You this morning and so thankful for our Lord. It is a daunting thing, Father, to, to think about our sin, um, to think about how deep it goes and how pervasive it is and how it affects every part of us. And then to, on top of that, realize that we haven't even seen our, our full sinfulness. Um, Father, our sin is so insidious that it doesn't even allow us to see how sinful we are. Um, and God, the reality is that you know all of it. You know the deepest 
sins in our hearts. You know all of the things that we have done that we have forgotten. You know all of the things that we will do. Um, And yet you looked upon us and sent Jesus to completely and utterly remove any condemnation from your people. To completely cleanse us from our sins. To remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And you have done that through the perfect life of Christ. You have done it by a promise, through faith, so that that we don't have to worry about earning this salvation, but rather it is granted and it is done. It is complete. So Father, we rejoice in that this morning and ask that you would give us the grace to rejoice in it more. For we know that we are not rejoicing to the extent that we ought to, given what you have done for us. So Father, increase our love for you, our just... uh, capacity to see your glory and your beauty specifically in Christ and help us to do see that a little more clearly this morning as we as we partake together as believers uh, in the supper that you have ordained for us father bless us please and thank you so much for Christ amen up and read from the book of Puritan Prayers.